Well, please uh, turn uh, to John chapter 13, which was on page 1081 of the Church Bibles. John chapter 13. Tonight uh, and in the weeks to come, I invite you to share a meal with Jesus and his closest friends, his disciples. That meal begins here in John 13 in the first 17 verses that we'll look at tonight. It's a special meal. The, the time has come for the yearly Passover festival, the yearly meal, the yearly celebration that God's people would have together as they remembered his grace, as they remembered his amazing rescue from Egypt when God had come in wrath on Egypt and yet he had passed over his own people, passed over them because their homes had been painted with, daubed with the blood of a lamb that said they were his and they were not to be touched And so year after year they remembered God's mercy, they remembered his rescue. And so here they are again in this upper room remembering that moment. But as we see this meal start in John 13 and it will lead us through the next number of chapters, we are also seeing another moment marked. The moment of the last hours of Jesus' life. A life that we're told all the way through John's Gospel was to end at the Passover. All the way back in John chapter 2 we are told that that is the key marker, the key moment when we know the time has come for Jesus. He knows it is coming soon and so when he knows that he turns and heads towards Jerusalem. By the time we reach John 11 we're told it's almost time. It's like John is keeping track, uh, like some sort of hourglass. He's watching the sand slowly creep through it and now it's starting to run very quickly. By the time you get to John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told there are only six days left and counting. And here the moment comes. The last few grains slide out of that hourglass before our eyes over these chapters. Before the sun sets again, Jesus, the Passover lamb, will be strung up. He will be slaughtered as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just hours away. From this point on in John's Gospel there will be no more signs, no more miracles, no more public ministry. The door is shut as we turn to chapter 13. Jesus is gathering one last time with his closest disciples for a meal to speak privately to them of things that matter most. And yet because of the scriptures we are allowed in on that meal. We are allowed into that upper room. This closed conversation and yet we as onlookers Peer in. Can you imagine the scene? This small gathering of people, the, the preparations are being made for this meal that they know and love. And in the midst of it all, Jesus is speaking to them, private words, and yet words that will change the world, words that will reveal clearer than perhaps any other words in Scripture what our God is like. For in these chapters we will see our God's heart. We will see what he lives for and we will see the difference that it makes. And so let's begin that meal together. Let's turn to John 13. And as you do, let me start by asking you a question I want you to have in your mind as you see Jesus speak and act in these verses. What do you live for? What do you live for? It's a question that I suspect would be met with many different answers out on the street. If we were to take some sort of poll of what people live for, you'd get many and varied answers. But what of us? As Christians, what do we live for? I suspect we'd want to say, well, I live for Jesus. 
knowing who he is and what he has done for me, my life is all about him. And yet again and again our hearts and our actions betray us. We find ourselves not too dissimilar from the disciples that gathered with Jesus that night who we're told in Luke's Gospel are giving an account of this very same event. Just as the meal is being prepared, as the bowls are being set out, are fighting amongst themselves about who is the greatest, who's the most important, who's the most significant in God's crew. I mean, of course, Jesus is number one, but then probably comes me, I suspect. And I suspect if we're taking a genuine look at our own heart, the same poisonous self-promotion is in there. Of course, Jesus is number one but then I'm second. And we're probably more subtle about it than the disciples. We wouldn't gather like we are tonight and uh, start an argument about who is the most important, the greatest. But it's still there, deep in us. Whether it's our, our ability to forever stand on our rights, what we deserve, or the competitive spirit that so invades our lives, Or perhaps it's our endless need for approval or acclaim or applause or acceptance by others. And beneath all of that is a poisoned heart that keeps asking the same question like some sort of broken record. What about me? We ask that question like clinging to some sort of security blanket. We we can't imagine living without that sort of self-interest as a defence, as a sort of a barrier against the world and those around us. But in the end, as we will see in these verses, that sort of self-interest is based on a faulty view of reality. A faulty view of what our God is really like and a false view of what we, his creatures, imprinted with his image, are like as well. And that for me is why these chapters are so unmissable. Because as we listen into these final words of Jesus before his death, he will fix our vision if we listen closely. And tonight he begins that by unveiling his nature to us. He is a servant. In the first five verses of our chapter John 13, we see the very heart of a servant, the heart of our God. Have a look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast and Jesus had knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being prepared, being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here in these verses you see the heart of your God. It's love, servant-hearted, costly, humiliating love. What he is about to do on the cross will demonstrate the full extent of that servant-hearted love. That's what's going to happen in a number of hours. But here in this upper room he acts out that with this simple but startling display of humility. And as he does it, verse 3 shows us what is in his mind and his heart as he does this. You see it there, verse 3, he knows who he is. He is the one that that the very first verse of John's Gospel tells us was with God in the beginning. He was God. 
He is the one with authority over all things, the one before whom all knees will bow, Philippians 2 tells us. He knows who he is, no doubt. And he knows where he has come from and where he is going, confident of that. He's going back to his father. So confident of who he is and where he is going, he stands up and does the most remarkable act of love an act hinted at here in chapter 3 and then written large some hours later on the hill of Calvary. Now I suspect in these verses we have before us Jesus acting out his entire life. I don't know whether you notice the, the, the parallels between uh, this simple act of washing feet here in John 13 and the, the picture we had in Philippians 2, the other reading. He leaves his place of honour at the table with his father He sets aside his rightful garments as God, as ruler of all things and he bends the knee to serve. This is the heart of our God. This is what life is all about for him. He lives to serve. And in these verses we see the nature of what true service really looks like. It is voluntarily carrying the cost for others. You, know, you look at this scene and you see Jesus stand up and you say he had all sorts of choice as to whether to do that, whether to sit there, sit on his rights, refuse to get up and yet he does it. It's purely voluntary, is it not? But he's doing it to show us that what he will do some hours later is just as voluntary for him. He was not subjected to death, he submitted to it for us. And you need to take in how remarkable that really is. You see, when death meets you or me, it brings us to our knees, does it not? We, we don't have a choice. It pushes us down onto our knees. But when Jesus comes to his own death, he in love bends the knee. What he will do the next day is as voluntary as what he is doing in this upper room. And so we must see his death that way. An act of self-abasing love. One writer put it this way, it's as if Jesus walks onto that hill of Calvary and takes his body and soul and he rips them apart for you. And so here in these verses, behold your God, a lowly servant, bent before you, utterly committed to your good. He doesn't do it in spite of who he is, he does it because of who he is. He doesn't do it in spite of his glory, he does it because he is glorious. That's what this chapter helps us to see, what the true and living God is really like. It's not what we expect. Perhaps it's not even what we want, but it is, as we will see, what we desperately need. As our chapter goes on, you see in verses 6 to 11 the difference this servant really makes. As Jesus walks around this room bending one by one before the disciples and washing their feet, they are stunned into silence. Not a word. I suspect part of it is the embarrassment that they were unwilling to get up and do this menial job. Someone had to do it. But I think there's an even bigger reason they are silent. That they have left it to the guest of honour to do this. Everything about social conventions, everything said that that was totally wrong. Jesus has turned everything they knew on its head, which of course he will do even more some hours later on the cross. They are silenced, embarrassed, yes, but stunned. That is except for Peter. 
the master of speaking when no words are required. Off he goes again. And we should be glad he does because as he speaks and the discussion that follows, we see even more of our God's nature. Do you see it there in verse 6? Jesus comes to Peter, he bends down, about to wash his feet, and he says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Everything about this is wrong as far as Peter's concerned. Nothing about this makes sense. Not until tomorrow. He sees no point that his Lord, his King, his God would do this for him. It's upside down. It's because he can't see the depths of his own problem, his own sin. He can't grasp the full extent of how much his Lord loves him. But he will. Over the next 24 hours he will see that. As he watches the one who washed his feet, the one he will deny even knowing, as as he watches him die for him, he will know that. The penny will drop about what his God is like and about what he is like. It says, Jesus says to Peter in response, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. This washing of feet is but a symbol of the washing the cross will bring. That's why he sheds his blood. So that through that blood, through the washing of that blood, Peter can come to Jesus washed, pure, spotless, radiant. Jesus serves Peter this way because he knows he's the only one who can. Otherwise, Peter will have no part in him. I love that word in verse 8, part. It's it's used all the way through the Old Testament to speak of inheritance that God's people were given, this great promise that they would get a land of their own, that they would have a part in that land, a share in that land. Now Jesus ups the ante into his promise for his people. He says, do you know what the real part that you're in on is? Do you know what the real treasure, the real promise is? It's not just a land. You will have a part in God, in his son Jesus. He is your inheritance, your treasure. But only if he washes you can you claim it. And here you see the great news of the gospel. It's not just that on the cross Jesus washes me clean. The great news of the gospel is because I am clean I can be with him. Enjoying what he enjoys, enjoying fellowship with his father. It's as Jesus says himself in John 17, if you want to know what eternal life is, it's not your ticket to heaven. That's just the start. Eternal life is that you may know the only true God and his son Jesus. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in that. Now Peter doesn't fully grasp it yet, but he grasps it enough to know that he wants in. He wants to be where Jesus is and so he says, wash me Lord. All of me, hands, head, feet, the lot. Give me the super wash, the full service. And in one sense you see Peter here, I love him, I love his passion. Nothing is sort of a little bit, he's full throttle either in the wrong way or the right way. And I read this of Peter and I think I want to be that way about Jesus too. So desperate to be in, so desperate to be part of what he is part of that I would say wash me, I want the full service. But of course there's a danger in that isn't there? That we can end up living the Christian life like someone with some sort of compulsive cleaning disorder, always unsure whether we're clean enough for God. Is he going to find some dirt under my nails? Some oil in my hair? What's so comforting is Jesus' response to Peter's call for this superwash in verse 10. Peter, you are clean. 
Your whole body is clean. This basin and this tower, this is nothing. What I will do tomorrow on the cross as I shed my blood is going to make you whiter than snow, Revelation says. You won't need another bath, I promise. You know, I've seen that snow properly for the first time ever in my life, I think, in, the, in recent weeks. It's just an incredible sight. I'm speaking to the converted, you're probably all bored of it by now, but I just think it's just amazing. It's so white. Even at night, it seems like it's daytime. That's the picture here. You will be white as snow. You can't believe how clean you'll be because of his blood. There will come times when you need to come to him again and say, I've blown it again. He talks about washing Peter's feet and he'll do that in a a few days when Peter denies even knowing him. And there'll need to be restoration. But what Jesus says to him here is that you, you won't need another bath. Once you're a Christian, once you have put your faith in Jesus' blood, that's it. You are clean. You are clean, Peter. Your whole body is clean. So Jesus finishes this discussion with Peter and he finishes working his way around the disciples and he puts back on his clothes and he returns to his place and he asks in verse 12, do you know what I've done for you? I've shown you what life is all about. I've acted out for you humanity 101. You want the instructions of what it means to be a human? Here it is. This is who you are. This is what you are created to be in my image. You are a servant, committed to the other's good. Those who are cleansed by Jesus' blood are called to serve each other. That is his nature and it becomes our nature. When you are covered by his blood, you look like him. Do you know why I did this for you, he says? So that you would know what life is all about. And so it's back to our question, isn't it? What do you live for? Jesus' answer, I live to serve and I'm calling you to join me because this is where blessing is found. And we have in these verses the truth that any presumption that I think that being a servant is beneath my station in life fades into uh, insignificance when I realise that the one before whom all will bow the knee is bent low before me to wash me then I see that I have every reason to join him and none to refuse. Jesus says you are to do likewise. Bend the knee before each other. Take off that dress-up king outfit that you parade around this world in. It doesn't suit you. Grab a towel and wash each other's feet. But for me, here's the danger in hearing that call from Jesus, this call to be a servant like him. I suspect there are many big calls that Jesus makes on us as disciples and we hear them and we offer a hearty, yes, I'm in. Servant, absolutely, of course, that's me, count me in. And then Monday comes and nothing happens. All too often we gather like this to be taught, to be fed by God's word and it becomes for us a theoretical exercise, a mind thing that never gets to our heart and certainly not to our feet or hands. But when God speaks, things come to life. When God speaks, lives are changed forever. And so if we are not responding to this word, if it is not transforming us, it's because we're not listening. At least not with repentance or obedience. Earlier in John's Gospel, he has already condemned those who hear his word and fail to keep it. 
Now at the end of our passage in verse 17, he says the same but in the positive. He says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live life to the full, if you want joy, then this is where it's found. Obeying my call here. If you do these things, you will be blessed. So what is it that's going to break through our deaf ears and our stubborn hearts? Our lack of trust that this is really the way we should live. Well, I think it can only be in fixing our eyes on Jesus, as we will do in a few moments in sharing the Lord's Supper together, to grasp together the full extent of God's self-abasing love for us. That's what drives the Apostle Paul, who wrote those amazing words in Philippians 2. It wasn't law that, that drove him to live the way he did, or pride, or fear, or trying to ingratiate himself to others. It was this stirring, stunning vision of his Lord bent low before him, submitting to death, even death on a cross, so that he, the worst of sinners, could come home clean. A Christian is the one who makes that vision the core of their life. It fills their field of vision as they head into Monday. The Christian is the person who thinks, if he did this for me, I am no one's creditor in this world. I am everyone's debtor as Paul will say in Romans 13. The Christian is the one who knows the fullest extent of God's riches have been spent on me. I'm owed nothing. And so I walk into this world amongst others and when there's a cost to bear, I'm the one who says, it's my shout. This one's on me. I remember that sort of feeling. A few years ago I went over to South Africa for a friend's wedding and it was about the time that the Australian uh, currency exchange between the Australian dollar and the, uh, the South African rand, I think it's called, was about one to ten. So every Australian dollar was worth ten rand. I felt like a king. All of a sudden, everything was so cheap. I acted like an idiot, to be honest, while I was over there. But there, I remember having this meal with a, with a group of people over there and the bill came along and I thought, no, this is on me. This is fine. I want to say, in this world, you are a rich man or woman. You cannot get any richer by stingily holding your life close and you cannot get any poorer by giving it away. God has spent a lot on you. So what's it going to look like to follow his pattern as we live together as his disciples? Let me say, it's going to mean a lot more than some sort of vain replication of this scene we have in John 13, as if perhaps if we got to the front here and all washed each other's feet, we have fulfilled his call. As Don Carson says, of that, that sort of parody of foot washing can easily mask a lack of humility and a lack of concern for the other. It's going to mean a lot more than that. You see, Jesus' commitment to serve here is a commitment to the long-term joy and well-being of another. And so that needs to be our commitment when we serve each other as well. Not just a moment, but long-term joy. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And so I think ultimately our job in serving each other is to promote each other's share in Christ. To see those around us grow to treasure him more and more. To rejoice in the blessing of knowing him and being known by him. And then enjoying the blessing that such a person becomes to us And we to them. That's what we're talking about here. We are to be before each other, knees bent, towel in hand, able to say as our Lord does, I come among you as one who serves. 
Now it's going to mean lots of different things, isn't it, as we head out on another week. I was thinking about it uh, after yesterday. Yesterday was my day off spent with uh, my children. It's been a sort of a busy week, so it was the first time really that I'd spent any time with them and I was so tired and grumpy that I reckon they got the dregs of uh, the week. I'm called to be their servant. I'm called to be gentle and tender with them even when I'm grumpy and tired. I'm called to be consistent. I'm called to be available and that means when I get to Saturday I know who I live for and what I live for by how I spend that day. I'm called to be their servant by presenting before them the big reality of God's amazing love. So it's going to mean for dads here and mums here being a servant to your children. And to children it's going to mean a humble willingness to obey, delighting to obey your parents, letting them know that you delight in obeying them. And for many, as we've heard tonight about our suffering world, it's going to mean being prepared to sit with those who suffer, being prepared to care for those who suffer among us. And some of us will carry an uneven burden in that and we'll be looking around for others to share it. I was speaking to uh, someone in this church family earlier in the week who's been in that sort of situation for many years, carrying an uneven burden of caring for a loved one, exhausted by it. Can't possibly see how that sort of care can go on much longer, but just the same breath is saying how refining that is how it has brought her to God in prayer again and again and again. You see this, if you do this, you will be blessed. I remember a couple in Sydney who had cared for their daughter for a decade, seeing their daughter make bad decision after bad decision, getting more and more addled by drugs as each week and month and year went by, and yet time and time again serving her, bearing the cost of that relationship. Only now are they seeing some sort of steady progress back to life for their daughter. If you do this, you will be blessed. And think about what it might mean for the way we live together here on a Sunday when we gather. You know, in a few moments uh, we will head across into the church centre and what we will do, and one of the things that struck me since we've got here, I'm not sure how to get around it, but it's just the way we operate together, is that some of us will go into the coffee bar Some of us will go into the lounge, some of us will go upstairs and never the twain shall meet. Let me challenge you tonight to be each other's servant. Perhaps break out of that, go into a different room and don't go there looking for what's in it for you, go there to serve. And if you're wondering whether people are being looked after and cared for in this church family, once again it is your job to say this is my shout and to stand up and to serve those in need. You know, I think we could spend hours plumbing the depths of the sort of examples of the sort of things that Jesus is going to call us to just this week. Let me challenge you to do that. In a moment we're going to share communion and I want to challenge you to do two things when we share communion. It's very easy either when you, just before you come up to communion and certainly afterwards to just, you've, you've done the communion bit and then you get on with what's, what's happening for the week or chatting with your neighbour or whatever it might be. Let me challenge you to do two things while we share communion. The first is to fix your eyes on the full extent of God's love for you. Fix your eyes on that. We'll have about 10, 15 minutes to do that together. And secondly, and this is what I love about the way this church is set up, fix your eyes on your brothers and sisters. Fix your eyes on whom you are called to serve this week. 
Make plans. What's that going to mean? Pray about it. And here's why Jesus calls you to this life as we finish. If we do this, we will be blessed. Each one of us and together. We will be at work presenting this church family radiant in Christ. The more we bend the knee and serve each other, the more we wash each other with the word as Ephesians 5 speaks of and wash each other with lives shaped by that word, the more this church will shine like he does. And next week we're going to see why that matters so much. But for now, know this. You will be blessed if you do these things. Let's pray.